Ten years ago, I was living in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania, and uh, attending this very church, and uh, we, I was part of the Thursday morning prayer group. Uh, some of you know that's an all-female prayer group, and it was at that time all-female except for me. I was the only guy who ever attended that thing. Sometimes Rosella would attend it, Carol Deering, uh, Susan Oberhalter. What's that? All the, all the time Rosella attended it, I shouldn't say she or sometimes. And Gloria, Gloria Shaner uh, attended it, and Joyce Oberhalter attended it. And uh, weekly we would meet for prayer. And uh, so this story just kind of has that as its base, so I need to tell you about that. I, I, one night on a Wednesday night, I worked Monday through Wednesday, and I got in between 35 and 40 hours in my work week between those three days of the week. Uh, Monday through Wednesday. So when Wednesday night rolled around, I had been on my feet working for you know a, a lot of the last three days, and I had this terrible pain. And throughout my life, I had had these kidney infections, back pain that would start, and I'd think I slipped a disc or something wrong, and, and it turned out to be my kidneys. And they would periodically back up, and I would have all sorts of problems. You want to you don't want to hear the story about that, but I ended up at the Phoenixville Hospital overnight. Uh, by myself, and I, my, there was nobody with me at the time. My roommate was out of town. I walked myself to Phoenix Hospital and uh, admitted myself and spent the night there um, until the wee hours in the morning. Then I went home, and uh, it was one of those weird, weird moments, just absolute pain, and the doctors couldn't figure out anything. I went through all of these tests, and, and they ended up saying it was kidneys again, and I was frustrated. This is probably maybe the eighth or tenth time in my life where I'd had this sort of experience, and it's really, I don't know if you've had a kidney infection, but that's a very painful experience. So there I was, and uh, I, I went, went to bed in the wee hours in the morning, got up and decided, well, what do you do after a painful moment like this? You go to the prayer service. So I went to the prayer service at, at Parker Ford Church, came up here, and I uh, met with those ladies. We prayed all the way through the morning. We usually prayed for up to two hours, I guess, at the time. And we went through this time of prayer, and it was about everything on the in the bulletin, that just like we pray this morning, just the things that our concerns in our church, and uh, everybody got up to leave. We said amen, and everybody got up to leave. And you could feel Joyce, and Gloria, you're here this morning. You, don't, you probably don't even remember this story, do you? Maybe, she, maybe you do. Uh, Joyce and Gloria kind of hesitated. It was kind of strange. And everybody kind of got up and filed out. And, and I got up, and Gloria did this. And this is a true story, Gloria, you did this. Gloria kind of snuck behind me like this, like she was going for the door, and then she grabbed me by the shoulders, and she pushed me back down in my chair. This actually happened. She sat me down, and she put her hands on my shoulder, and she said, Lord, this boy doesn't want to have you touch his life. And I thought, what do you mean I don't want to have God touch my life? And she prayed that right out loud. And Joyce came next to me, and Gloria held on to my shoulders. And, I mean, honestly, if we wrestled, I can, I'm convinced I could beat Gloria in a wrestling match. But at that moment, she pushed me down, and I had no choice but to take a seat, I'll tell you. So she sat there, and she, she started to pray for me. And Joyce joined in, and they prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed. And for the next five minutes, it wasn't an hour-long prayer service, but just for the next five minutes, they said, and, and I still remember the way it started. Gloria said that line, this boy doesn't want to have you touch his life. He doesn't believe that you can do this. He doesn't want you to do this. He's actually kind of addicted to his own pain. He's used to this life of pain. And frankly, I had at least two diseases at that time, and I was accustomed to them. I had been in and out of hospitals a great deal in that period of my life. And she prayed this prayer, and at first I was offended, as most of us would be probably. And then secondly, I could kind of feel the Holy Spirit saying, no, she's right. She w and she was. And they sat there and they prayed for me. And would you believe it or not, 
by the end of that time, I, nothing happened. I got to tell you, my back, you know, was in the same spot. I walked out of there and said thank you and just kind of hugged them and moved on with my life. But here's the deal. It's, 2000, it's 2010, and that was 2000. It's been 10 years. I've never had another kidney infection from that day till now. Isn't that amazing? And, it, you know, sometimes it's interesting what, faith, what form faith takes. And my faith was minimal, okay? And I have faith for this or that. There's different areas of faith. Uh, but I had no faith that God wanted to touch my life. And it took two older ladies, and they, 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 the, the sort of ladies who could get away with that. If my wife would try that, I mean, what are you doing? You know, but it took two people like Gloria and Joyce who had faith, and they conquered my lack of faith with their over-exuberant faith and held me down and prayed for me, unwilling as I was. And today, honestly, I've never had another kidney infection after that. So I, I, Tim said this is the story that would kind of really make sense in this message, so I wanted to share with you and just say praise God and Probably we should all say that. We've all seen answered prayers, but praise God, right? All right, with that, Tim's going to come and lead us into the message. How many of us would like to hear from the Lord this morning? Then let's pray again and ask him. Your words are life to us, God. And your words direct us. They guide us. We ask that in this moment you would make our hearts soft. You would make our minds alert. You would awaken our spirits. And that your word would be alive in our lives so that we can know you more. We can understand you more. And we can walk with you more. We wait expectantly for you to communicate with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever noticed sometimes people who are the responsible ones, the ones who are in charge, sometimes get so stressed out that they kind of freak out? Have you ever watched that happen? Someone who's in charge of an event or uh, is leading the team or is doing this stuff and the pressure just mounts so much that one little thing happens and it doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but it's on top of all the other pressure and they just kind of snap. Maybe you've been that person before. I know I've been that person before. And uh, you can picture it with a, a person running a business, maybe in a restaurant, the, the manager of the restaurant. It's a crazy night. There's all sorts of stuff going on. And he's trying to make sure that everyone's doing their job. And, you know, the plate gets dropped and things crash. And the manager just loses it because there was too much pressure that night. It, it was mounting. It's funny, in those moments, it's easy for everyone else to look at the person and be like, come on, you're the one in charge, keep it together. When, oddly enough, the pressure that is put on that person is usually put on by the idiocy or the incompetency of those very ones who are pointing the finger and saying, why don't you keep it together? You know, in the old time, well, you know, uh, parents are a great example of this. Sometimes they work so hard to help their kids do what they need to do. And the kids just kind of like, Eh, you know, and not nearly as concerned as the parent is. And over and over again, as the parent's trying to help the child go the way they need to, every now and then the parent just loses their patience. In the Old Testament, there was a way to deal with this. You know what happened to kids who were disobedient in the Old Testament? They got stoned 
Wow, that's harsh. You get a little bit of help from God in the Old Testament <laughs> in putting the fear into your children. You know, as we progress, as, as we move forward year to year in our society, we expect better behavior out of children and yet permit less and less discipline. And it's funny, the paradox. We expect more and permit less. We want to see the benefits, but we don't want to see the painful things that cause that benefits. Those who are in positions of responsibility, therefore, grow in the levels of tension and frustration because there's so much that they're supposed to accomplish and the tools by which they are supposed to accomplish those things get less and less. And now it's like, how in the world am I supposed to accomplish all of these things in my life? All the pressure is on me, and I have so little tools at my disposal in order to accomplish it. And you can just feel the tension in our society grow. The other day, I was driving from uh, the Pottstown area. I, was, I had my car at the shop, um, at Rod Watson's shop. Some of you remember Rod Watson. And we were driving back over I was driving back over on 724 back this way, and I got to Kime Street. You know, Coventry Christian School's on the right, the bridge, and 422 on the left, and there's the light there. The light had been red. There was two cars there. I'm driving up to it, and the light turns green just as I'm getting close to it, but these two cars are making a left-hand turn. I slow down, and I hit the brakes. I actually hit them pretty quickly. And there was, you know, if you're familiar with that intersection, there's actually just enough room on the shoulder to kind of squirrel around people there, but you have to go off the road. It's not paved, it's gravel, and there's a bunch of potholes there that you have to, like, you'd have to go around. Well, my suspension on my Sentra right now isn't all that great, and I decided I'm not going around there. I don't even know if you're supposed to do that or not, but I don't know. I'm just putting my brakes on. So I put my brakes on, and these two cars, uh, I kind of anticipated they were going to move forward a little bit, you know, to kind of move, but they didn't. They just stayed put, so I had to put them on a little bit abruptly, there was a woman behind me in an SUV who was flying, and she really anticipated I was going to go around there, and she wanted to whip around and keep going. So she comes flying up behind me, and she locks up her brakes trying not to hit me. And I look in my rear view, and I'm just kind of like, huh, I wonder what's going to happen here. And she comes sliding in, and before she stopped, and before she, before she stopped and didn't hit me, before she stopped, she already had her hand so deep down in that horn that she almost broke her steering wheel. She was furious with me. And it was a, it was a sunshiny day, and uh, she has her windows down, her moonroof open, and she is screaming obscenities at me and giving me gestures that shouldn't be seen. And uh, I was like, Wow. I'm not really sure what you want from me. And she's yelling, it's a green light, go around them. And, she, and I was like, I don't think I'm going around them right now. You know, I, you didn't help me change my mind, you know. Um, and, uh, and, as the, and there was only a couple more cars coming the other way before these two cars in front of me were going to take a left-hand turn. It, it might have been five seconds difference, you know. And finally they, uh, they turn and we go and she's still blaring her horn and screaming things at me as she hangs a right on the Kime Street and I continue on. And I remember thinking as I walked away, like the tension right then was so much higher than it had been a few seconds before, you know. And I was like, I wonder what's going on in that lady's life that she's that furious about just this moment. You know, it wasn't that big of a deal. What is it in our lives that creates all the tension? We've all had the moments when our reactions to things aren't nearly 
proportionate to what the issue is. We freak out way beyond what we should internally or externally. And it's because there's this pressure. There's this pressure within us. Pressure is nothing new. Some people have the privilege of being able to kind of kick back and they don't have a ton of responsibility and they can kind of coast a little bit. You know, there's these moments, these different moments in life. I look at my kids sometimes and, and there's, every now and then I'll see them get upset about something and I'm like just laughing. I'm like, I can't believe this little thing makes you that upset. Life gets a lot bigger. You better get used to it, you know. Um, but there's places in life where you don't have much on you. Things are kind of relaxed. You might be at the shore on vacation and you don't have any responsibilities and a person might cut in front of you and it's like, whatever, I got all day, you know, and it's not that big of a deal. But those of us who know that our call in life is to follow Jesus, recognize that he's put a call on us to reconcile all things to himself. See, Jesus, when he died on that cross, that grace, not only is it supposed to work itself out in our lives, it's supposed to work itself out in creation all around us, in our neighborhoods, in our families, in all of these things. And we have the pressure of our boss breathing down our neck, of our church with expectations from us, our family needing these things done, all, all this different stuff in our life. And on top of it, we know that God has called us to be ministers of reconciliation in this world. And there's a call placed on our life. At times, that can really build a sense of pressure. How do we do all of this? The tools seem minimal. And and the job seems absolutely immense. It's nothing new. Our passage today is from James. The people in the early church, the call on them, huge call. The odds against them, spectacular. Sometimes if they tried to pursue the call, they'd get a guy like Nero who would put him on a stake and hang him up in his palace and light him up like a torch. That's pressure. It's pressure. Socially, completely unacceptable. The outcasts. Financially, irresponsible because if you found out you're a Christian, you're losing business. You know, all across the board to walk out the calling that they were called to caused immense pressure. There's a number of letters written to these people in the early church who faced this kind of pressure in their calling. One of them is the book of James. The book of James starts off, we're going to start right here in verse 2, chapter 1, verse 2. James doesn't lower the bar for them. <laughs> Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Does he lower the bar for them? I love it. So the woman comes driving up behind me, locks up her brakes, all the chaos, all the pressure in her life. And in this moment, she's supposed to consider it pure joy that someone stopped in front of her when she was planning on going around. These guys, when people were going to discard their business, when they were going to be socially rejected, when the pain and disruption of their life was about to happen because of their calling, they were supposed to consider it pure joy. Seems a little trite, doesn't it? Pure joy? Verse 3, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, 
not lacking anything. I remember as a child, there would be uh, a number of times where something would happen. It might be at school, in the classroom, or uh, you know, on a team where something happened, and I just knew that what happened to me in this moment was unfair. It was completely unfair. I just got treated inappropriately. I would come home and talk to my parents about it. You know, this wasn't okay. This, you know, this, they did this and they did this. And my dad usually had one response for me. Anybody guess what it is? It develops character, Tim. It develops character. And I remember thinking, I don't want character. I want justice. You know? Man, thank goodness that justice isn't what we get. You know, if I got justice, how many times am I on the other end of the stick? And, and the truth is, is that these things come into our life and they develop character. If our job is to be reconcilers, if our job is to take the blood of the cross of Christ and work it out into every corner of our life and every corner of our world, then when the pressure comes... What's happening is, is he's creating opportunities for us to reconcile. He's creating opportunities for us to take the power of the living God and the blood of Christ and make it a reality in the situation that I find myself in. So when the car does this to me, when the person at work does that to me, is God's work on the cross powerful enough to redeem this situation? And what he tells us is, is that as we begin to count it joy and say, you know what? God is doing work in me right now. He is helping me fulfill my call because I'm supposed to work this salvation that he's placed within me into every corner of my life. And right here, he's put me face to face with a place where the salvation isn't working for me yet. (laughs) Because right now, I am angry and I want justice. But if I go to justice, man, what happens to the grace that I so desperately need? What happens to the mercy that he bountifully gives? His salvation calls me to give the same measure of grace and the same measure of mercy. So apparently in this situation where I'm really frustrated and the pressure is mounted, I haven't experienced the fullness of his grace in this moment yet. Otherwise, the pressure wouldn't be what it is in my life. And so now he's put me in exactly the right spot. He knows my button to push. And he's put me right there and allowed this thing to happen, not because he wants me to feel pressure, but because he wants me to feel his grace in this moment. The truth is, is that you and I both know that we can't handle the pressure. We both know that eventually we crack. That eventually when the screws get turned tight enough, when the person does the right thing at the right moment, something happens inside of us and we just can't handle it. it might, the response might be anger. The response might be despair or hopelessness. Any number of responses it could be that are not appropriate faith responses. But the truth is, is that in those moments, we don't need us and our discipline. We need God and his grace. We asked last week, is the Christian walk a walk of work or a walk of grace? And your response was grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith. So we have this grace available to us, the power of God. You know, it kind of reminds me, I've never actually seen this show, but there's a TV show um, I, I've seen it in moments. I've never seen a full episode of it. Uh, Mil- millionaire or something where you ask questions. 
they ask you questions, and if you answer right, you get more money, that type of thing. What's the name of that show? Anybody know? Who wants to be a millionaire? Thank you. I, I've seen it like at the shop or something when I'm waiting. It's one of those things that always seems to be on when I'm waiting somewhere. And I see little bits of it. And I remember seeing this one spot where the person couldn't answer a question. They didn't know the answer. And they had something called a lifeline. Is that right? A lifeline. And so they were able to call someone and call this person. And the person was able to give them their advice on, about the answer. Well, the truth is, is that there is just a bountiful measure of grace and life available to us in this moment. When the person is screaming obscene gestures at us, when the pressure at work is mounting and we can't handle it, when our life is confusing and we don't know how we're going to pay the bills, when my kids just won't do what it is that they're supposed to do, when all of this stuff is coming, there is an immeasurable bank account of grace. The life of God is available to us in that moment, but we've got to pick up the phone and we've got to call. There's a lifeline. Grace is available, but there is a tool of faith to access that grace. Grace. What is the tool that accesses God's grace in this moment? Prayer. When it comes to working out our salvation with fear and trembling, when it comes to accessing the grace of God that is available to us in this moment, there is one tool one discipline that stands above all the others. It's the foundational one. It's the initial one. It's the first one. It's the biggest one. It's the most profound one. It's the one that humbles us and it's the one that accesses the power and wisdom and strength of the living God. It is the up discipline for us. How we connect to God. In the moment when there's all the frustration around us, there's one thing we're called to do to access the power and the presence of the living God, and it's called prayer. Prayer is given to us as a primary spiritual tool to work out the grace of God in our life. When that woman locked up her brakes, and when she started screaming all that stuff at me, there was some of Tim responding for a moment. I was like, you know what I think I'm going to do? I think I'm going to go about five miles an hour from here on out. <laughs> That's what I think I'm going to do. And there was another side that said, you know what, I need to talk to God about this right now. I can't change my heart. This woman just did things to me that were completely disproportionate. I didn't even do anything wrong. And she's doing stuff to me that, like, I, I could have slapped someone in the face and they wouldn't have treated me that bad, you know? And, like, completely disproportionate, completely unfair. And I'm supposed to count it pure joy, you know? And what do I do in that moment? I don't have the ability to make myself just all of a sudden feel great about it. But what I do have the ability to do is to talk to God about it. That's what I have the ability to do. Listen to what James says. Verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives it generously to all, without finding fault, and it will be given to him. If any of you lacks wisdom. What's wisdom? Anybody know a working definition of wisdom? Application of knowledge. That's right. Knowledge applied. So knowledge is all the stuff we 
have up in our heads. Wisdom is knowing what to do with it in the moment, right? When he calls us to count it pure joy, when he calls us to walk out our lives as ministers of his reconciliation, one of the biggest things that stops us dead in our tracks is either confusion or a sense of powerlessness. We get crippled by the amount of stuff going on, by the confusion of it. There's so many variables in my life, my boss, my family, my church, my neighborhood, all this different stuff. There's so many different bills to pay, so many different demands on my life. There's all these different nuances, and at times it can become confusing. At times the pressure can mount. In that moment, it's really hard to maintain joy. It's really hard to just walk out faithfully what God's called us to. And yet he offers us something. There is grace available to us in the form of wisdom. See what wisdom is. Wisdom is the thing that will help us untie all those knots in our life. The confusion, all the knots. And to know what's the next step I have to take. But we can access that wisdom by one thing. By one tool in our toolbox. Wisdom is not in our toolbox. Wisdom is in God's toolbox. That's his grace to us. What's in our toolbox is prayer. Prayer is in our toolbox. If we think that we are wise in our own eyes, then we are deceived. We don't have the wisdom it takes to live the life he's called us to. If we think we have it, then we're arrogant. If we know that we don't have it, and we get humble, and we ask him for it, that's called faith. And the way we ask him is through prayer. And so the first tool in our toolbox that is available to us, again, is prayer. One of the ways that God manifests his grace to us through prayer is through wisdom. If life is confusing, we can't get the knot untied, take out prayer, and it's like a knife that just cuts that knot and it falls apart. What's amazing about prayer and the way it brings wisdom, for me, it doesn't usually bring wisdom necessarily because I figure everything out. What happens is I just get a different perspective. As soon as I start communicating with God, my whole perspective shifts. That moment when that woman was blaring her horn and saying all that stuff to me, I started talking to God, and instantly God was like, how do you think I feel about this woman? And I was like, heart changed like that. As soon as I got in communication with God, I was like, i got to pray for this woman. And when you pray for someone, everything changes. Everything changes. And the pressure that was mounting and tension in my chest in that moment just went away because all of a sudden I was partnering with God in mission and I felt valuable again. And I didn't feel disregarded and disrespected by this woman. I felt loved and respected by God. And I didn't have tension anymore. When we get in communication with God, wisdom is what we get because he changes our perspective. And then all of a sudden we know what to do with the knowledge that we have. He promises us that he will give wisdom to anyone who asks. But listen to this. Verse 6. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded man, unstable in all he does. What is this? Does that mean that when I ask for wisdom... I have to absolutely know God's going to give me this wisdom. Is that what that means by belief and not doubt? What it actually means, in my opinion, excuse me, is it means 
that if I'm asking God, if in this moment I'm having faith, okay, here's what I want to do, but I need to trust you. I need help. When I say I'm going to trust you, I need your wisdom, then I need to actually trust him. What that means is, is when he reveals what the next step is, that I've got to be willing to do it. That's what it means to believe God, to trust God. If I ask for wisdom, but I don't like the answer and I don't do it, then I'm double-minded. I'm saying that I want wisdom, but I don't actually want that kind of wisdom. Because what he told me to do right now is he said, you know what, Tim, this whole ball of wax, this whole mess that you're in right now, it would be fixed if you just went to your wife right now and said you're sorry for that thing you did. Well, I'm not trying to hear that. I think she did something. You know, or, or maybe over here, whatever it is that God has called us to do, Maybe in this, in this confusion of I don't know what to do with my calling, well, what I want you to do, Tim, the best way to do it is to walk across the street to your neighbor and to invite them to church. Well, I don't want to do that. You know, God gives us wisdom for all the situations in our life. Oftentimes the wisdom that he gives are things that we don't want, things that we don't appreciate. If we ask him for the wisdom, then we've got to believe him and trust him with what he gives us. And if we don't, then he's like, why am I going to give you wisdom? It's pointless. I, I, I can't even give you wisdom. You, know? you, you don't want it. You can't receive it. You don't actually want it. You say you want it, but you don't like the answer. And so the truth is, is that prayer is prayed in faith. It's not just believing that God can do what it is that he says he'll do, but it's placing my life in his hands. And it's saying, my life is not yours. I trust you. The book of James ends the way it started. If you go over to chapter 5, starting in verse 7. This is our reading for the day, and then we're, uh, we're going to uh, say a few things about that and wrap it up here. So I'm going to have you stand for our reading for the day. This is 5, starting in verse 7. Better get to the pulpit here. It's a lot harder to read from my Bible when I'm holding a microphone, too. Be patient, then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains? You, too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, or you will be condemned. Verse 13. If any one of you is in trouble... He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call on the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up if he has sinned. He will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain. 
and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. And again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. You can have a seat. It ends the same way it started. He calls us to persevere. He calls us to hang in there. We have this calling on our life, and he says it'll be okay. He gives us all the, all the things we need available to us in order to continue to work out our calling and to work out the salvation. And he gives us, us tools to access his tools. Prayer is the tool, again, in this passage. In the first part, he said that if we need wisdom, it's made available to us. In this part... He says, if we need healing, if we need companionship, if we need security, all these things he has available to us. The tension in our lives comes when we don't have the wisdom, when we don't have the healing, when we don't have the power, when we don't have the security, when we don't have the companionship, the tension begins to build. But he says all these things are available to us. This brings us to the place of the anointing, of the prayer, of coming together as a church and praying for one another. You see, what happens is, is that God has called us to an amazing work, and it's a great privilege. And we all have the privilege of serving God, doing what he's called us to in his kingdom. But for each and every one of us, we have hang-ups, and we have those things that build pressure. But what God offers to us through prayer is his power and his grace. And all the things we need to cleanse our souls, to heal our bodies, to enlighten our minds, His grace is available to us in abundant measure. And he gives us ways to access that grace in order that we can continue on in the journey that he's called us to. And in particular, he says that if we're really struggling with something, that we should go to the leaders of the church and we should ask for prayer. And they should put some oil on us and they should lay hands on us and they should pray for us. And the prayer offered in faith, and remember what the faith is, It's trusting in God and being willing to go whichever way he calls us to. The prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. Do you believe that? Historically, at Parker Ford Church, we've seen God heal people through anointing. Physically, we've seen God people many, a number of times. If I asked right now, I know that you could start telling me stories about people who were physically healed through anointing. As a child, I have great memory of a couple of those situations. I remember Karen Leparulo, who was a person who was struggling with cancer, and she came and prayed, and God healed her. I remember uh, Ray Willauer. There was a moment where he was struggling, and there was healing that took place in his life. I remember a number of times seeing healing happen. There is One that I remember more than any of the others, and most of you probably don't even know about. And it was because it was only about seven years ago, eight years ago, and I had just finished up college, and I was in the fourth year of a deep depression. And I couldn't shake it. And I couldn't get out of it. And there was nothing I could do to break free. And it had a hold of me. And no matter how much I wanted to have joy, like James is telling, 
There was no joy to be had. I was in a bad spot, and I didn't know how to get out. It was resulting in all sorts of negative stuff in my life, and I wasn't able to live the life that God had called me to. I was challenged to have an anointing service. And so I decided to go to the leadership of our church and ask for anointing. A number of you prayed over me at the old church, laid hands on me, anointed, prayed over me. As I was getting up, the same person who told me that it builds character (laughs) told me, believe, because the prayer offered in faith makes the sick person well. You may not feel free yet, but God's seed of healing is within you. Hold on to it and believe. For a couple months, I struggled still. A couple months later, I was in Valley Forge Park, and I was reading my Bible, and I was studying to teach a class about David and Solomon. And as I was sitting there reading the scriptures, trying to figure out why Solomon, the man who had everything working for him, was, un- was unhappy, and David, the one who had a rough life, <laughs> was incredibly happy, I was trying to figure out the difference. And all of a sudden, truth that I had known my whole life became reality for me. I sensed God asking me to look in the mirror, in the rearview mirror of my car. And I look up into the rearview mirror, and I looked at myself in the eyes, and I sensed God saying to my, my heart right then, when you look in those eyes, what do you see? And I was like, God, you don't want to know the answer to that question. I don't see anything good. I don't like what I see in there. It doesn't make me happy. I wish I could change it. And then I sensed him saying, hey, when I look in those eyes, what do I see? And I was like, you see it all, so you feel worse about me than I do. And he pointed me to a passage of Scripture that I opened up that rebuked me to the core and said, the next time that you think I look at you and despise you and condemn you, realize that it's a lack of faith, son. Because I died on a cross to make sure that you knew that you were deeply loved. And I respect you and I care for you. Don't make a mockery of my cross. There is nothing that you can do that will make me dislike you. There is nothing you can do that will make me like you. What my son did on the cross is enough. And in that moment, all the knowledge I had in my head became a reality in my spirit. And in that moment, I was healed. And God released depression from my life. And I stopped looking at things through those dark, pale blue lenses. And instead, I began to see the glory of God in my own life. And I began to have faith that I didn't know I could have. And it happened because we went to an anointing service. And some people just followed the basic principles of Scripture. No big hubbub about it. It was simple. You want to live the life God's called you to? You can't do it alone. You need God. If you want my wisdom, if you want my power, if you want my grace, pray. If you need something this evening, come to the anointing service. Receive prayer. If there's pressure in your life, pray. This isn't a message to get all hyped up and do a pep rally because it doesn't matter what we can do. This is a moment to depend on God. What we need is not us. What we need is God. And there's one primary way to access God, and it's through prayer. Through prayer. So let's pray.
Jesus, we thank you and praise you, and uh, we give you honor and glory because you have grace available to us. And uh, thank you that your blood was shed on a cross, that it gives us the access to your throne. Thank you that prayer is our mightiest weapon, our greatest tool. Thank you that you give it to us at any moment, at any time, and that we can access you. We hope and desire that you will continue to draw us more and more to being a people of prayer. I thank you that prayer is in the deep DNA of this church, that it's a part of who we are, and we ask God that it would continue on and grow in the name of Jesus. Amen.